Hey, so everybody's got a full belly, it's kind of warm in here, feeling kind of nappy, all right, it's my kind of crowd. Pastor Booth, you stole my coffee. You're the commander in chief, I'm the pirate. This, this was um, procured at the Reagan Library, I'm told, I have it on good authority, really good authority that President Reagan actually drank from this cup and that Pastor Booth bought it for a hundred bucks. <laughs> All right, we're going um, to be talking about loving your enemies and I would love to start off with a story about my oldest daughter. Where is she? Oh, there she is. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm not gonna. I'm really not going to. I wish I could, but she's just not my enemy. Well, she was once, but it got better, so I don't want to tell that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that as we consider this topic, loving our enemies, uh, that you would be kind to us and uh, illuminate our minds so that we could understand, uh, give us hearts that are eager to obey your word. Um, give me mouths that are, or give me um, words in my mouth that will be um, uh, edifying and helpful and give us all ears to hear. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Okay, so when we talk about loving our enemies, one of the first tasks before us is figuring out who our enemies are. Um, uh, Sometimes when we think of enemy, we think of somebody that's actually actively trying to do us harm. And that is one definition of enemy. But if you look enemy up in the dictionary, as I did, there are a variety of definitions that uh, you know, we, need to, we need to consider. So the, the first definition of enemy is someone who actively opposes you and is hostile towards you. And so that's the one that frequently comes to mind. Another a definition of enemy is just an opponent, somebody who's on the other side, somebody who is just taking a different side of an issue, perhaps, or uh, is an opponent in some sort of game, a, a competitor. And so when, uh, when y'all were having the Nerf war up here, at which I would say I'm an innocent casualty... <laughs> Minding my own, sitting there, just being, and I got shot in the neck. And I want you to know that when those things go by you, they whistle. Right? I'm surprised that they don't do more harm than they do. Um, and so uh, we can have, or, or another definition of uh, enemy is an adversary. So if you're in a legal proceeding, a person on the other side of the issue um, is by one definition, the enemy. And so you have to, you're treating them as such because you want to prevail over them. A very important thing is to know who is not your enemy. Sometimes we think people are our enemies and they're really not our enemy. If there is someone who just doesn't like you, that doesn't make them your enemy. Just because you don't like someone does not mean that they're your enemy. There are people in my world 
that I don't really care to be around very much. They're not bad people. They don't smell bad. They're not doing anything to anybody that I know or love. They're not trying to do anything to me. I just don't care to be around them. And I don't know if that is the case in your world or not. But that doesn't make them your enemy. Sometimes there are people that you find yourself in some kind of rivalry with, but it doesn't mean that you are necessarily enemies. Now, there is something that happens in the Bible. And I'm going to point this out. And if this is not what was really going on, then I repent in sackcloth and ashes, out of which God makes beautiful things, right? But I'm going to show you a rivalry in the Bible that I really am pretty sure was there. So, Jesus had some disciples, and two of the prominent disciples were John and Peter. And I think that John and Peter didn't always get along very well. And I think that John preserved this for us in Scripture. And I think it's funny. And I hope you will too. So, one thing that shows up here is when Jesus is taken in the garden, you'll remember the Romans came and Peter, well, in Matthew and in Luke, it's recorded like this. So, in Matthew 26, we read this. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd from the, a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus, stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. So there is a, one of the people, one of, the comp, one of Jesus' company is, identif- is, is said to have done this thing to one of the company of the chief priests. And then in Luke... Chapter 22, we read this. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Jesus, would you betray me, the Son of Man, with a kiss? And when those who were around saw him, or, or those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them, one of them, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. And then we get to John.
And when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, and there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place where Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen, uh, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They said, him. They said to him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that had been spoken. One of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Of, of, those you have gave me, you have, of those you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, <clears throat> then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. So he's like, okay, so there's this guy Malchus and Peter cut off his ear. Okay, that may not mean much. But then we get to the res- morning of the resurrection. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, <laughs> and said to him, or said to them, They have taken our Lord out of the tomb. And we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And then, as John closes his Gospel, Jesus is having a conversation with Peter, you know, the three times, you know, do you love me, feed my lambs, do you love me, tend my sheep. This is a recall of the thrice denial that happened after Jesus was taken. And then Peter is told, follow me. But then Peter, this is John recording this, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, following them, the, the one who had been reclining at table close to him, and it said, Lord, who is, it going, who, is it, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw John, when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? What, what, about, what about him? What about John? And Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. John, I think... I don't know if he's actively saying in Scripture, look, I'm going to get Peter, but I think there was something going on there. I think there was some kind of rivalry. But clearly they were not enemies. They might have bumped into each other. Lord, who's going to sit at your right hand? Who's who's going to be there when you come in your kingdom? There might have been some tension. There might have been some rivalries. But they were not enemies because they were following the same Lord. Someone you don't like, someone who you are in some sort of rivalry with, is not necessarily your enemy. 
You are to know, you are to know who your enemies are and who they are not. And you also need to understand how your adversarial relationships affect those around you. So if you find yourself in some sort of adversarial relationship, you need to be mindful that other people are observing this relationship and people who look up to you could end up being affected in an adverse way. So this happens in the book of Philippians. Paul, in his, uh, when he's nearing the conclusion... Chapter 4, he says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now, these are two, apparently, two prominent women in the church who were having some sort of disagreement some sort of adversarial relationship. And Paul preserves in Scripture, tell them to get along. Tell them to agree in the Lord. And probably because they were affecting everything else. They were affecting the church in Philippi. So we need to understand how our adversarial relationships can affect others. Now the thing is, You may not have many real enemies in your life, but you will accumulate them over time. At least you should. You should have enemies, but they need to be the right kind of enemies. It's not just people that you pick a fight with. It's not just people that you decide you don't like and so you're going to go on an assault against them. You need to have the right kind of enemies. The kind of enemies that you should be cultivating, really, are the kind of enemies who are the enemies of the cross. You need to um, uh, be accumulating enemies who are enemies of Christ. Now, it's not that you... It's not that you go out and pick these fights specifically, but as you make your stand, as you take your stand for Christ, as you live a faithful life, you will accumulate enemies. As you say righteous things, good things in the world, other people are going to oppose you. There are people who are already opposed to you because you name the name of Christ. And we know that those who are against Christ are active in the world. They're active all over the place. Our culture is full of enemies of Christ. And they are therefore your enemies. Sometimes we have the kind of enemy who is a doer of a bad thing. They want to cause you harm. They want to victimize you in some way. Those kinds of enemies deserve a certain kind of response. They are to be resisted. If someone breaks into your home, they are making themselves your enemy and you need to defend yourself in whatever way is necessary. You will have cultural enemies. There will be enemies of the church who come into the church Wolves, and they are surely your enemy. They mean to do you harm. They mean to do those you love harm. But you need to make sure 
that when you take up arms of some sort, whether it's a verbal altercation or sometimes even a physical altercation, that you are the one who is equipped to fight the fight. You need to make sure that you are the one who is prepared for this. An example of this is found in the book of Acts in chapter 19. Kind of. So in Acts 19, beginning in verse 11, God was doing extraordinary extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. Then, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, if there's not a funnier phrase, (laughs) itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil man the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered them all, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. They got the pants beat off of them. Listen, I'm going to tell you something. If you ever get in a fight and you leave the fight and you don't have any clothes on, you lost. <laughs> they were not prepared for this battle. And very often we want to take up arms with those who... who and, and I'm going to tell you the way that we do it. Like this. Right? Somebody's wrong on the internet. Right? We're going to fix them. We're going to fix them. I'm getting uh, Somebody's yelling at me right now. Or we want to engage somebody in our lives. Somebody who we perceive just disagrees with us on some theology thing. So we go and we, we, we dive into these things. We may not be prepared for it. We may not be equipped for it. So make sure that you are. I'm not saying that you don't take up these fights, but you should make sure that you are equipped for them. But most of the time, in our day-to-day lives, we don't know what it is to have real enemies. We live in a place where we're relatively secure. We don't have people coming after us. We don't have those kinds of things going on in our lives. But as we do, and if we do, and over time, it'll happen more and more, our Lord... And his apostles have given us very clear ways to interact with our enemies. We've been told, this is how you respond to your enemies. Now, as I said before, there are times, sometimes when an enemy needs to be resisted, if they're coming at you physically and you defend yourself, there's nothing wrong with that. Or if somebody's coming after someone that you love and you, you defend them, that there's, there's everything right with that. But our Lord said something in... The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Verse 43 and following. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those 
who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. I'm going to read that again. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now this calls back what he said in the Beatitudes in verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. How do you make peace with your enemy? How do you make peace with someone who is your sworn enemy? If you go about the business of fighting them, you're probably not going to make peace with them. The way that you make peace with your enemy is by loving them. By loving them. And so, how do we love our enemies? How do we do that? Anybody have any suggestions? Giving them things they need, such as if they're thirsty, giving them water to drink. That's right. Anybody else? Pray for them. Mm -hmm. Anybody else? Anybody have any enemies? Not a lot of practice? How about be kind to them? Just speak kindly to them. When they come after you, if they come after you with some sort of verbal assault, rather than getting into a, a verbal altercation with them and trying to argue out, argue them, which you know, can be fun, but you're not going to win the day. Rather than doing that, you speak kindly to them. You, you listen to them. You understand where they're coming from. It doesn't mean that you have to grant their point. It doesn't mean that you have to give in and say, oh, you're right, I'm wrong, and you know, can we be friends? It's not like that. It's peacemakers, not peacekeepers. There's a difference. But you hear them. You apologize for any, involve, any, any part that you played in the conflict. which is the equivalent of giving them a glass of water. Jesus said that when someone strikes you on the right cheek, you should ball up your fist and punch them in the nose. You give them the other one also. If they assault you, you just give them the other cheek. What happens when we do that? What happens... In the dynamic, if someone comes up to you and they slap you on the cheek and you give them the other one, what happens psychologically there? Confusion. Confusion? Or maybe there's a moment where they stop and they realize that maybe you're not as much an enemy to them as they are to you. When In the ancient world, when someone was going to strike someone on the right cheek, it was done with a backhand. So it was an insult. You used the right hand to smack somebody, you would smack them on the right cheek, and it was a show of power and dominance, and they used the back of their hand to do it. 
So when they would slap you on the right cheek, and then you give them the left, you are forcing them to strike you with the open hand, with the open side, with the palm of their hand. And that's not how you struck an inferior. So now, what you're doing is you're actually equaling the playing field. And I'm not encouraging you to be pacifists, but I am saying that you are doing this in a passive kind of way. You are establishing a kind of equality between the two of you. So now when they come at you, they're coming at you on different terms. When someone demands of you your cloak, give them also your tunic. I'm cold, give me your cloak. Oh, you're cold, I'll give you my cloak and, and this thing too. This, this might help you. What happens there? When someone says, I need you to go a mile. Okay. I'll, I'll go two. I'll go, I'll go further than, you, than, you're, than you're insisting. What happens? What's the dynamic there? You're changing everything. This is essentially what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 is getting a lot of play this weekend. So let's return there. Beginning in verse 14, Paul says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never avenge yourselves. Listen to these these words. So, repay no one evil for evil. And when you say no one, that is no, there's no person. Don't, Don't do it to anybody. Never repay someone evil for evil. And here, never avenge yourselves. This is very strong language. Do not do this. Do not ever avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God. As it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, rather than avenging yourself, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. You're changing the dynamic. Now this heaping burning coals is not like... So when I was a kid, uh, my mom used to use this phrase, kill him with kindness. And so her, her intention was, I'm going to be so nice to them. I'm going to be so nice to them <laughs> that they're going to hate it. I'm going to kill them with my kindness. You know, All kinds of you know, good intentions toward the other person. <laughs> I'm going to be so nice to them that they die. <laughs> The idea here in heaping burning coals being, is giving someone, some, giving someone uh, water when they're thirsty or food when they're hungry is not a way of getting revenge. It's not, the way, it's not a way of finally, ah, I'm getting the upper hand now. What you're doing is the, 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 the concept of burning coals is overcoming someone. You will overcome your adversary with love. You will overcome them. And then he says, you do not be overcome 
by evil, but you yourself overcome your adversaries by doing them good. Here's the thing. Loving God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself is hard. It's really hard sometimes. We find all kinds of... Uh, 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 Pastor Neil's concept the other day of taking evasive uh, measures to get out of loving our neighbors, that's something that we really have become adept at as a culture. If we don't want to be around somebody, we just go into our... pull into our garage, close the door behind us, live in our air-conditioned house, and we never have to deal with our neighbor. And that's a metaphor for all kinds of tactics that we employ. We've become very good at not doing that. But that... Loving your enemy, loving your enemy is so much harder because here is somebody who is actively trying to do you harm. Somebody who wants ill for you. And God says, love them. Love them. And there are times when I've had, I've had enemies. And the last thing on my mind was trying to find some way to love them. I wanted to crush them. I wanted to make them go away. I wanted to discredit them. But what came to my mind was not, how can I, how can I love them? And we have... An example of what this looks like. This love for enemies. And it happens in a lot of different ways in, in Scripture. But here's one that stands supreme. Our Lord, the Son of God, died for us, gave His life for us, loved us in the most extreme way while we were His enemies. We all were enemies of God. We were, by nature, children of wrath. Enemies of God. God is the cosmically offended party, and humanity, all of us, were the offenders. We were enemies of God. And God's response to us was not to crush us. It wasn't to obliterate the world. It wasn't to blow up humanity, make it go away. Rather, He chose to make us His friends. He overcame us by doing good to us. He overcame us by giving us the only thing that could bring us back to life. The only thing that could bring us back to our true way of being human. The only thing that could bring us back into fellowship with Him. He gave it to us. And it was nothing short of His own Son. And so, when someone attacks you, when someone is your enemy, it's very doubtful that the thing to do for them or with them is going to be as expensive as giving your child. But we are called to love them. We are called to care for them. Now, sometimes the way that we love our enemies is to resist them. 
Sometimes loving someone means I'm going to say no to you. I'm not going to buy what you are selling, as Pastor Booth alluded to early, earlier. I'm not going to I'm not going to let my children play with your children. Because the way that you are raising your children up is in direct opposition to the way that God says that we ought to raise our children up. And so you may not like what I'm going to do, but it is for your good that I resist you. Because by doing this, I am actually putting on display what is true. It may be that we just refuse to be around or with or to associate with somebody. We resist them. And that can be a way of loving them. Sometimes loving someone means that we do things that are the extremes. When um, a year or so ago there was the young man who went into the church in... Washington and shot nine people. He is now uh, in the sentencing phase. I think it's still going on of his trial. And the prosecution is seeking the death penalty. Now, I don't know if that's legally the right approach or, or whatever. I think that the grounds is, is you know, maybe a difficult thing. But there are times when the death penalty is a loving thing to do. Now, it doesn't seem very loving. But we are communicating to that person and to the rest of the world that that kind of thing cannot stand. When a person is being excommunicated from the church, sometimes that is the most loving thing that you can do for them. We talked about yesterday the young man in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The loving thing to do for him was not to sit him down and have a good cry. It wasn't to have a, a, a counseling session in which he's, uh, he's invited to you know, purge his feelings. What needed to happen at that point, because he had refused to repent, the loving thing is to put him out. It's loving for him because he is shown the severity of his sin. And it's loving for the rest of the church because they are shown that this is a true thing. That they are being protected. Sometimes the loving thing is to sit next to someone that doesn't like you and just be there. Just sit next to them. Invade their space. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to be here. And if you need anything, I'm going to be here for you. Now, the other thing that I want to talk about when it, when it comes to enemies, I want to talk about things that you do that invite enemy relationships that are not good. There are times when you should take stands and that will invite enemies and all the rest. But there are things that you do or could do that would be um, inviting uh, an enemy relationship 
that you should be warned against. When you lie, when you tell a lie to someone, it is an act of war. You are saying that that person does not deserve the truth because they are an enemy. Now we can affirm a kind of righteous deception in which, you know, if, if somebody breaks into your house and says, hey, do you have any, any children here because I want to take them away? Yeah, no, I have no children. That's not a true thing, but it's a righteous deception. You're deceiving, deceiving them. But I'm just saying, lying to them for some sort of personal advantage. That is a declaration of war, something that only enemies deserve. Okay, I'm going to tell a story on Sarah. I'm so sorry. I have to. I am compelled by the Spirit. Sarah had a little sore in her mouth one time. And my wife grew up not in the country, but kind of country. You know what I mean? And so Sarah came in, she had this, this little little sore in her mouth. And she said, Mom, what is this? And Marty looked at her kind of with this look of, you know, surprise and a little bit of shock. And she said, that's a lie bump. A what? That's a lie bump. Have you been telling lies? <laughs> no. Oh. Wow, I don't know. I don't know because that's what that's what causes those. And so Sarah just goes away about her about her way, and Marty and I kind of look at each other. And, yeah, okay, what's that? <laughs> An hour later, Sarah comes into her room. She's four. She's four. Okay. <laughs> so it wasn't it wasn't last week. <laughs> but she's, I lied. <laughs> And it was about, you know, did she clean up her room or something? You know, it was something heinous like this. She's always had this very tender conscience. And so it was, that's just a trick that you, I'm giving you for when you have children. <laughs> Coerce them into telling truths. It's my favorite lie story. Um, when you betray a friend, when you betray a friend's confidence, when you betray a friend by talking about them, in such a way that is gossip or unflattering. It is an act of war. You are declaring war against your friend. And you turn your friends into enemies that way. When you sin against your friends, you are, in effect, declaring a kind of war against them, thus making them enemies. So it's just a caution. If you read uh, Ken Sandy's work on conflict resolution, K-E-N-S-A-N-D-E, I highly recommend that you um, get his books. There's a bigger book and then there's a smaller one, kind of a handbook on conflict resolution. Um, the way to resolve these kinds of things is to be quick to confess, quick to repent, and quick to forgive. And it doesn't, it's not just going to someone and saying, I'm sorry that there's a breach in our relationship. It means opening up and confessing your sin and saying, I need you to forgive me. 
There's a difference between saying, I'm sorry, and please forgive me. You understand that? And you say, I'm sorry, that's you trying to assuage your own conscience. But when you say, please forgive me, you're giving them power over you. You're saying, I need to be forgiven. I need you to forgive me. And it means opening up to them about what your sin is, what you've done, what you've, what you've done against them. And don't say, yeah, I lied and I'm sorry. You say, I lied and this is why I did it. I wanted to gain an advantage over you. Or I did not want you to know this thing and so I hid it from you and I concealed it from you and I lied to you and, and it was not the right thing for me to do. Will you please forgive me because this has broken our relationship. This has turned us into a kind of enemy. And it also means that when they come to you and say that, that you are quick to forgive, that you love them. You say, yes, of course, I forgive you. I, I'm, 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 I, I want the friendship back. I want us to be restored. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy has sinned against you, forgive him. What Jesus did for us was not just to secure forgiveness for us, but it was to give us life and to set us free. When we do that for our enemies, we give them life and we set them free. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we know that what You have done for us is in so many ways beyond our finding out, beyond our comprehension, but we know that You have done it and You have called us to do the same thing, to lay down our lives for our friends and to love our enemies. We are to be like Your Son. And this is a hard thing. It's a hard thing for us because we don't understand it. We don't want to do it. But we know that as we obey, we find joy and that things that are broken are put back together. Things that are sick become healed. Father, I pray that You enable us to avoid enemy relationships. But where they do come, Enable us to respond appropriately. All of this we pray for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.